passage this morning is from the book of Genesis, so if you want to follow along, it's Genesis 48. And we're going to be looking at the entire chapter this morning, so Genesis 48, 1 through 22. Father, once again, as we come before you to hear from your word, we pray for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would give us a right understanding of this passage. Help us also to apply your word to how we live. So, Father, we come this morning and we commit to listening in faith and in worshiping you with our response. In Jesus' name, amen. Who gets to decide? That seems like it might have been an easier question when we were kids, at least in certain situations. Um, Maybe you had a friend over to your house and you were, you know, at playing after school or maybe there was going to be a, a you were going to watch something on TV or, or have a snack or something like that. And if there's a choice of, of what to watch or what to eat or, or, or what to do, you might have been the first one to say, hey, I, I want to do this. But mom was usually right there to step in and say, now wait a minute, there are guests, let's let them decide. There's really no arguing with that as a child. Yeah, well, that makes sense. I guess so. They're the guests. Birthday parties are another easy way to determine who gets to decide. If it's your birthday as a child, it, it's your decision. If you're having a party, you decide who comes to your birthday party. You decide what kind of cake you want. You decide what kind of games are going to be played. It's, it's, it's birthday. You decide. Even if you grow older and grow out of the birthday party scene, your family might still celebrate going out to eat. Who gets to decide? The birthday boy, the birthday girl. You do. That's an easy one. Maybe you're uh, playing a, a pickup game of, of kickball or baseball and you're, you have to decide where the bases are and, and where the, the home run line is. If it goes back beyond that, it's just an automatic home run. Who gets to decide? Easy. The person whose house it is. It's their house, their rules. They get to decide. It's pretty easy, at least in those situations. For believers, even as adults, it's still an easy question to answer. Who gets to decide? God. God gets to decide. That's, that's an easy question to answer. Now, to be sure, we want to do our best as we make our way through life to obey those whom God has placed in authority over us in the home and church and state. But in the end... God gets to decide, because we know that God is over all things and over all people. Therefore, God gets to decide. God decided how things began. God gets to decide how things end. God gets to decide who's born. God gets to decide what kind of life we have. God gets to decide. He decides between right and wrong. He decides between good and evil. When we look at Genesis 48, we're going to see... What's happening here, it's a picture of Jacob adopting and blessing 
two of Joseph's sons. We're going to see Jacob adopting and blessing two of Joseph's sons. So first we're going to walk through this chapter and unpack it, see the original meaning like we usually do. But when we get to the application section, we're going to be talking about how God decides who his sons are and God decides who his sons become. God decides who become sons and who those sons become. Now we use the term sons and we mean men and women. So we're talking about sonship status in Christ. So it doesn't matter if we're male or female, we're all sons of God in Christ. And that's a good thing. We want that sonship status because with that comes the spiritual inheritance and the blessings and everything that comes with being united to Christ. So we're going to look at the passage and then we're going to see how God decides who becomes sons and who those sons become. So let's look at this chapter. This is 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took him, he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came to Padan, to to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. Well, there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father at the air, My sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near to him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. 
So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Our our passage begins with the phrase, after this, and we're we're prompted to think back, well, after what? What just happened in the previous chapter? And if you remember, this was where we discussed how God can and does bless anyone, anytime, and we could see how Joseph uh, and his uh, family uh, promised to bury Jacob in the family tomb in Hebron after they, they came down. So after this, we're told, Behold, your father is ill. So Jacob, or Israel, as God renamed him, is sick, which is another way of saying that he's near death. And he has some business to take care of before he dies. Chief among those uh, items of business to take care of is the blessings of his son. So he's going to be doing that here. That's what we just read. And then that's going to continue on into the next chapter, into 49. We're going to see him continue to bless his other sons. So Joseph brings his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, his first two, and presents himself to his father. Then in verse 2 it says, Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. So it took everything he had just to sit up. This man who once took land with his sword and bow now is barely able to sit up. So we get the picture here. He's old. He's, he's not very strong at all. He's dying. And this is uh, one of the last few things he's going to do before the Lord takes him. Verses 3 and 4, Jacob speaks and, and recounts how God spoke to him at, at Luz, which was the older name for Bethel. He designated him as the rightful heir of those covenant promises. Yes, Jacob, you are the next in line in this covenantal line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you're the next one. Yes, I'm affirming that. So Jacob now can make these blessings with authority. Jacob can now designate who will receive the inheritance. He, he, in a sense, gets to decide because he's the father and these are his sons. Jacob gets to decide who will receive an inheritance in the promised land. So he states in verse 5 that these two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, are to be counted as his. Here's that language. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. So we're going to be witnessing what this, what this is about is a, a formal adoption in a legal sense with all the rights and privileges of inheriting as a son would inherit. He's saying these two sons are going to be my two sons. And with that comes everything that all my other biological sons will receive. Moreover, he says, as Reuben and Simeon are. Who are Reuben and Simeon? The first two. The first two actual biological sons. So the biological firstborn sons of Jacob, Reuben and Simeon, are being displaced. He's saying Manasseh and Ephraim are henceforth to be treated like firstborn sons. Now we get... We can double-check this. We can check our math by going to, to elsewhere in Scripture. First Chronicles 5 confirms that for us. 
It says, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, parentheses, for he was the firstborn, was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. So here are Manasseh and Ephraim being bumped up, being elevated to firstborn status with all the inheritance rights. This means they're going to receive a tribal inheritance portion after God brings them back into the land of Canaan over 400 years later, the conquest of the land, the division into tribal territories, they get an allotment. Manasseh and Ephraim get an allotment just like the actual sons of Israel. If you have a Bible with maps in the back and you turn to a map that shows the division of the land by tribes, there they are, Manasseh and Ephraim. So they're going to get a portion in verse 6, Jacob addresses the question that Joseph might have been asking, which was, well, what about my other children? You're taking these, what happens? Jacob says, the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers uh, in their inheritance. In other words, these two are mine, the rest are yours. These are the only two that are getting an inheritance. Everybody else is going to be counted as descendants of these two guys, and, and they won't be given their own special allotment. They won't have land when, when the land is divided. Verse 7, still thinking about Rachel, favorite wife. The act of taking the sons of Joseph may have been another way to honor her, another way to perpetuate her, her lineage wasn't able to bury her in the family tomb, but by adoption, he is expanding the number of her sons, so to speak. Uh, verses 8 and 10, the questioning and identification of the, of the two sons, and then the request to bring near. Do you see all that, that language? No, he knows who they are, right? When he's down at the bottom here, verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, who are these? He knows who they are. They are my sons whom God has given me. This is language of a formal adoption. This is the, who are these? They're my sons. It's kind of like um, at a wedding, uh, who gives this woman, her mother and I? I mean, we all know that. But it's part of that formal ceremony, in this case, adoption. So that's what's going on in verses 8 through 10. Bring them to me that I may bless them. And he does so. Verse 11 Jacob expresses thankfulness to God who's worshiping. And then in verse 12, he takes them, them off his knees and the adoption process is concluded. So then in verse 13, now we get to the blessings. Now that they're Jacob's sons, he's going to, going to bless them, just like he's going to bless his other sons in chapter 49. Now he can give them this finer, final fatherly blessing that, that everyone else um, that's biologically born to him will receive. And then we see this language, they're very specific. Joseph is guiding them towards, towards his father. He knows his eyesight, eh, not so good. So I'm, I'm going to help him out here. Uh, the firstborn is going to your right hand, and the secondborn is going to your left hand. The right hand blessing was considered the preferred blessing. It was considered the, the greater blessing. It was the greater position. It was a position of preeminence. So the, the oldest, the one with the firstborn status, gets the right-hand blessing. So that's what Joseph's trying to do. He's guiding them into position so that the proper blessing 
can be given. But, in verse 14, Jacob crosses his hands and lays his right hand on Ephraim, the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh. So Joseph doesn't really have time to respond. It, it almost seems like, you know, in the, in the guiding, and the hand laying, it just happens and he jumps right into the, the blessing, verses 15 and 16. This has three different references. The first reference is this. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. So this is continuity. We've seen this time and time again when we've gone through Genesis. This mention of the forefathers. This is the same God of Abraham. It's the same God of Isaac. It's my God. The same God that was with them is with me. The same God that promised the, the covenant to them is, is promising it to me. This, this is continuity, consistency. The one who acts. Number two, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. This highlights the personal relationship. This is not some kind of pagan God made out of stone or, or wood. This is a very personal God. He has spoken to him. He has acted. He has intervened in his life. Protection, provision, presence. And number three, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Remember, the angel of the Lord is a reference to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. This is a pre-incarnate reference, or a reference to the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. Uh, we saw that in Genesis 16 when he appeared to Hagar. Remember that? It was the angel of the Lord. It was actually pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, Jesus. Bless the boys, that's a request for blessing, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. The idea here is even though these are adopted sons, I want them to receive full inheritance and, and be full recipients of all those covenant promises growing into nations, growing into a multitude. Even though they have an Egyptian mother, I want them to be counted as full sons. I'm adopting them. Let my name in them be carried on. So they're going to be included as full sons of Jacob. Well, by now, in verse 17 and 18, Joseph takes a moment to react, but now he realizes what's happened. Ugh, he's crossed his hands. What are you doing? This is a disaster. It says, it displeased him. Hmm. Why did it displease him? Because it seems like his dad was messing up. And maybe in his old age or the lack of eyesight, maybe he's confused. I don't know. What are you doing, dad? The right hand goes to the oldest. The left hand goes to the next oldest. It displeased him. He'd been grooming Manasseh. You know, the, the firstborn status was such a huge thing. He had a double inheritance portion. But then you had all those responsibilities. You, you became the head of the household. This was a huge deal. And he'd been preparing. He'd been preparing Manasseh for this, for this role in this spot. And then all of a sudden, the hands crossed. Dad, what are you, what are you thinking? It displeased him. There was no reason to bypass the firstborn. What are you, what are you doing, Dad? So he reached out his hand actually grabbed the guy, grabbed his dad. No, not this way, my father. This one's the firstborn. He grabbed him and he pulled him over. Now, also remember this time, not only is this just a big deal that he seems like dad's messing up because he's confused or can't see. Remember at this point, Joseph is 
used to being in power, to say the least, right? Number two man in the most powerful empire on the entire planet. He's used to saying things and having them happen. He's used to giving orders. He's been in charge for several years. He's, he's not used to having things not go his way. So I, I see a little bit of that frustration coming out. A little bit of maybe impatient from somebody who's, who's had it all for a while. And then the, the response, though, uh, there's still a little life left here in Jacob. Uh, equally as strong, twice repeated, I know, my son, I know. And then you catch that, my son. He, he said my father, but the my son, you know, there's something about reminding the son that I'm still the dad, you're still the son. I know you're a big, important man in Egypt and everything, and you've grown up, but I'm still your dad. Still your dad. I know what I'm doing. They're both going to do well, but the younger shall be greater. This is on purpose. I'm not confused. This isn't my bad eyesight. Ephraim gets the right hand blessing. Now, can you let go of my hand, please? I know what I'm doing. Jacob blessed them. He proclaimed Ephraim and Manasseh would become symbols of what it looks like to be blessed by God. That's what verse 20 is. Uh, as a way of saying, may God make you great, people would say, may God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. So this is a, a positive of blessing here. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh, because this, God wanted it that way. Remember, this isn't just uh, an idea that he had. This is God's leading. In the Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11, or the Hall of Fame of all the heroes of the faith, Jacob is listed, and there is one thing listed about Jacob, and guess what that one thing is? This. The blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh. Hebrews eleven twenty one. By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. That's the only thing it says about Jacob. It's this event. The reason Jacob gave Ephraim the right hand of blessing was not because he felt like it. It was because God was leading him to do it. And it was an act of faith because what he was saying with this act of blessing the sons is, I am believing in the promises of God so strongly and so completely that I am taking special measures to make sure that these two sons are given a portion of an inheritance of a land, this, uh, this land that's been promised, this land that's been given to, a promise to, to our fathers, 400 years from now, we're going to go back to Canaan and they're going to receive, their descendants are going to receive a portion of that land. This is an act of faith. He's believing in the promises of God. By faith, there's going to be a multitude of descendants inheriting the land. And he's putting things in order now for 400 years later. That's faith. And it deserves the place in, in Hebrews 11 that it has. Verse 21, another statement of faith, both of the yous in verse 21 are plural. So you, Israel, meaning the multiple descendants of, of his sons, are going to be coming back into the land. And then verse 22, moreover, I have given to you, singular, Joseph, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Joseph gets a piece of land that the other brothers don't. 
Joseph is being singled out. He's, he's getting preferential treatment. Jacob is showing favoritism. No, not favoritism like the world says. The world says all favor, no, most favoritism is unfair. The unfair distribution disproportionately of one person over another. This isn't unfair. This is favoritism, but it's not unfair. It's his decision to make, and he made it. I'm giving you a piece of land that I'm not giving any of my other brothers. And I don't think we're going to have a problem with the other brothers this time. I don't think they're going to get bent out of shape. This isn't going to be another long coat or coat of many colors problem again. They're, they've moved on from that. Who gets to decide? Well, Jacob decided that, that he was going to adopt and bless Joseph's sons. He was not acting in accordance with the customs of the day or, the, or with the expectations of the day or even Joseph's wishes. He was not uh, acting in accordance with any of those things. He was bringing in these two sons and giving them full rights, full status, full inheritance as adopted sons. And he solidified which tribes would receive an allotment when the land was divided up after the conquest. It would include Joseph's two sons born to him in Egypt, even though they weren't biological sons of Jacob. They were his grandsons. So that's what's going on in the, pack, in the passage. God decides who becomes sons and who those sons become. And we're, there's two parts to that, so let's look at the first part. Last week we talked about God blesses anytime, anywhere, but remember we also said he doesn't give his spiritual blessings to just anyone. Instead, he spiritually blesses everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. But the Bible teaches us that before someone can call on the Lord, the Lord has to call them. I was very thankful this morning that we sang that song that talked about God calling us out of death and calling us into life. Yes, that's good theology. Before anyone can call on the name of the Lord, God first has to call them. God decides who becomes sons. Ephesians 1, 4-5. Even as he chose us, there's that call language, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Jacob got to decide who his sons were. He, he got to decide that these two that weren't his sons were, were adopted and become sons. Likewise, God is the one who decides who becomes sons of God, who's saved, and who isn't saved. Now, this is a good thing because we are not God and we are unqualified to make those types of decisions. I hope we can all agree on some common ground at that point. And as we saw in Genesis, God often chooses and makes decisions that don't make sense to us. Um, so they may seem kind of irregular to us from our perspective. For example, uh, Cain and Adam, uh, Cain, excuse me, Cain was Adam's and Eve's firstborn, yet God chose to bring about Noah through the line of Seth. Okay, he wasn't either one first or second born. That seems a little odd to us. We probably wouldn't have done it that way. 
Abraham's firstborn was Ishmael, but God chose to establish his covenant with Isaac. Remember, even Abraham protested. Oh, that Ishmael would stand before you. God said, no. Isaac, son of promise, not Ishmael, even though he's the firstborn. Jacob himself was the secondborn, yet God chose him over Esau. Judah had a child by immorality with his daughter-in-law, and yet that child plays a part and takes a role in the genealogy that leads to King David and ultimately Jesus. If we were making these types of choices, we would most certainly have messed things up. We're not qualified to decide. We're not capable of knowing all things or how all things work together. That, that is a God thing, completely in, in God's territory. Uh, we don't have the master redemptive plan of God in front of us to consult. We don't, we don't have everything on file that we can look at, and, and we aren't even capable of doing that. Now, one big objection to this doctrine that, that God chooses and God decides, I've had several, this isn't just a theological abstract, you know, Question. I've had several actual conversations with both unbelievers and people professing to be believers who bring this big objection to this doctrine that God decides. And here it is. I think we should all decide for ourselves. I think the only fair way to go about it is for God to put everything out there for us to examine and then it's up to us. That's the only fair way. God should put everything out there. He should make the gospel clear. There's heaven, there's hell, there's sin, there's Jesus. And then we decide. Otherwise, we're just puppets and it just, uh, I, I, don't, I can't handle it. I've even heard somebody say, I'm not going to worship a God if that's the way it works. I'm not going to worship a God like that who doesn't let us decide. Well, those who make this objection are forgetting about one big piece of truth and that is our sinful nature. They, they are completely forgetting about our sinful nature. All people are born with hearts that are depraved, self-serving. The Bible calls us spiritually dead, sons of disobedience, children of wrath, sons of the devil. That's the language that the Bible used to describe all people before God calls them. Our minds are hostile to the things of God. For example, Romans 3 None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Ephesians, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Mark 10, no one is good except God alone. John 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't see it. You're spiritually blind, let alone choose it. You can't even see it. John 6, no one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. Do you see the problem with that objection? If, if God laid it all out there and left it up to us to decide, no one would choose God. No one would decide to repent of their sin and turn to Jesus. It just doesn't work. No one would become sons of God because we don't have the desire or the ability to choose God in our dead spiritual state. We can't even see it. We're blinded. Spiritually, the only way anyone can repent and believe or choose God is if God has first chosen them and regenerates them through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
God gives us new spiritual birth. God brings us to life. And before that, we're unable to choose him. When we look at Joseph's sons, there's no way that they could decide on their own to become adopted by Jacob. Did it look like Ephraim and Manasseh could just decide on their own that they would become full inheritance uh, sons of Jacob? No. Likewise, there's no way any of us could choose to become sons of God in Christ. So I hope that's clear. And these are just a handful of passages from Scripture. Um, that objection, let's all decide, and I think God should just let us decide. That just doesn't work. They're forgetting about the spiritual deadness of our hearts and the, and the default state that we're all born in. It is impossible for anybody to choose God unless God first acts on their heart. So that doesn't work. God decides who becomes sons. Now the second part, and who those sons become. And who those sons become. Uh, notice Joseph didn't seem to mind that Jacob had chosen his two firstborn sons to become full inheritance uh, sons in, in, in Israel. Did you catch that? No problem with that. When did he start to object? When he wasn't doing things the way he wanted him to do it. That's when it started to displease him. Not this way. I have no problem with you adopting my sons. That's good. They're going to receive all these things that they weren't able to receive beforehand, but I want you to do it my way. When we become sons of God in Christ, God continues to decide who we become in Christ. God decides what our life will look like. It's important to thank God not only for saving us, but also for directing our lives in the way that God has decided, no matter what that way is. We can't, we can't nod in silent approval of the fact that we've been forgiven our sins and then start to pro protest as soon as life doesn't go the way we wanted it to go. It doesn't work like that. God decides. We want to praise God for all things in our life, whether it's health or sickness, wealth or poverty, famous and well-known or anonymous and unknown, strong or weak, good-looking or unattractive, smart or not so smart, a relatively easy life or a relatively hard life. We're to praise God and be thankful no matter what he decides, no matter what our lot is in life, it's from God. And here's the thing. Um, not only should we be satisfied and thankful wherever we're at on that spectrum, but if it ever changes, because that happens. If we're over here on, on the good side of that spectrum, but then through whatever, you know, as life goes on, we end up over here, praise God. He knows what he's doing. It's important to thank God for everything he has decided for us because it is always, number one, for his glory, and number two, for our good. We can bank on that. This is one of those things that will never change. It's always true. If we are in Christ, everything that happens in our life is for God's glory and for our good. We, we can just guarantee, promise that. There was a, a woman who was um, middle-aged, uh, whatever that means to you, uh, 40s, 50s, I don't know. Um, 
And she was, she lived in a, a mobile home, in a, a mobile home park, and she was, I'd say, average to below average in attractiveness, and she was not wealthy by any means, and she'd had part-time jobs here and there throughout his life, her life, but she didn't have this, you know, she wasn't a power executive, she didn't have this, this big, you know, six-figure career or anything like that, and she got a cancer diagnosis, very quickly, uh, just mild symptoms, and then all of a sudden, through a couple of tests, um, you've got about a month to three months max. And someone went to visit her and talked with her, and as she lay there in the hospital, she said, this is okay. God's been so good to me, and if this means one person puts their faith in Jesus, then it's worth it. And then she died about a week later. True story. Now that's an extreme example. But that's an example of someone who is thanking God and praising Him and very content with how things had fallen in her life from God. And it, it brings into crystal clear focus for us how we want to be making sure that we are avoiding grumbling and complaining about our lot in life, no matter where we fall on that spectrum. We may find ourselves trying to grab God's hand, not this way, over here. I want you to do this for me. And I, I hope we're not surprised if God responds in a similar way to Jacob. If we're grumbling and complaining and trying to grab God's hands, God may respond in a similar manner. He may be saying, I know, I know, I know, son or daughter, I know that's what you wanted. I know that's not how you pictured your life turning out. I know you wanted something different. I know you were working towards this, but I know what I'm doing. This is on purpose. My eyesight isn't gone. I'm not confused. I love you and I know what I'm doing. Now can you let go of my hand? Stop trying to force things. <laughs> Praise God that God decides. We don't know the future. We, we don't know what's best for us. If we tried to decide our own path in life, we would most certainly mess things up. Guaranteed. God decides, not because he's our guest, not because it's his birthday, not because he knows where the home run line is, because he is God. God decides. Now, if we look back at the passage, it was obviously difficult for Joseph to hear his father say, no, no, I know what I'm doing. Take your hand off, please. <laughs> I got this. Uh, but notice also, once Jacob corrects him, we don't hear anything else from, from Joseph. We don't hear any more complaints. I'm your dad. I know what I'm doing. No more complaining. Yeah, God decides who becomes sons and who those sons become. God, God decides who becomes sons. He calls people through the ordinary means and the proclamation of his word when he decides to call someone, he places them within reach of his word, within the ear gate or the eye gate. And the Holy Spirit is at work 
causing them to hear and believe. John 20, 31 says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are written, these words of God are here so that you may believe. That's the way God operates. When he calls someone to him, he uses his word and the spirit through his word to convict people of their sin, to wake them up to the things of God, to take the veil off their eyes. And I would say, if you are not yet a son or daughter of God, now's the time to believe. Now's the time to turn and repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus. He's the only one who provides forgiveness of sins, and that was made possible through the cross. But forgiveness of sins is only found in Jesus Christ, and it's because of the cross. The, the blood of Jesus shed on the cross was not for his sin, but for the sins of the elect. It, it was not for his sin, it was for the sins of those that God calls to himself, his people. And, and it works because God is God and he's decided that instead of demanding our blood, our life, for eternity, he has, he has accepted the payment of the Son on the cross, the sacrifice. It is sufficient. The, the blood makes payment. It covers, makes atonement. It covers our sin so that God doesn't have to pour out his wrath on us. He's poured it out on his Son. And not only that, but his perfect righteousness, Jesus' record, which is perfect, gets credited. It's imputed to us. So that when God looks on his, his people, he sees the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus. That's why the Bible talks about us being adopted. We're not his biological sons, if you want to think about it that way. We're adopted. We're full rights, full status, full inheritance because of the blood of Jesus through faith. If you're not yet a son or daughter of God, now is the time to believe in his name. If you are a son or daughter of God, let's praise him for his provision and for his promises without complaining, without grumbling. For the lot that he has assigned to us, he has chosen us, so let's now act in faith, walk in obedience as obedient sons and daughters, rejoicing in what he has decided for our life. Because if we decided, we just mess it up. We're not God. Let's close with the words of the, the psalmist, Psalm 16. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance because of our status in Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you that you have adopted us full sons and daughters. We all have that sonship status in Jesus Christ. Full inheritance, every spiritual blessing. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you for the eternal future that we have with you. We thank you for our purpose here. Father, forgive us when we complain and grumble. We repent of that. Help us rejoice no matter what season you have us in, no matter what our lot is in life, 
we are thankful that you decide and that you have decided to call us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.